Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. It's so nice to see all of you. Wow, it's so nice to see many of you. Some of you back for the first time. Thanks, bro. Uh, some of you back for the first time. Some of you still maybe online, on a podcast, maybe on YouTube. You're, you're just not ready yet. Uh, we understand that, but we are excited, and uh, we're really, really grateful for a chance to be able to do this. Um, like we said earlier, uh, as part of the welcome, you know, we're blessed to live in a country that uh, in the midst of all of the challenges, there's still room for us to be Christians and to love Jesus and to learn and to be careful. And so we want to be mindful that we're still being really, really careful as it relates to COVID. If you don't feel comfortable removing your mask, you don't have to do that. If you have to use the washroom, just very, be very mindful of that. Uh, but we uh, are excited as we celebrate. Some of you know this, like our, our fifth year anniversary. And, you know, I was thinking about this last night. Five years ago, before the church officially launched, I was a wreck. I had a rash. I, I didn't sleep. I was so nervous. Have you ever done something like you're starting something new, a new job? Maybe some of you remember getting married and thinking, oh, I don't know if this is the right person. Anyone? No? Okay. I just, we have, a cl we have classes for that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> but, you know, there's these moments of new things starting and you're just not sure and you're nervous. And uh, God has been with us. And uh, throughout the service, I'm going to share like little tidbits of things that God was doing and things that we're dreaming about. But I want to begin by telling you something really, really important that's really shaped kind of how I think about my life and what it means to be a pastor. I want to tell you about something that I've heard over the years people say that is a sign that they're losing hope. This is something I've heard consistently from young people and old people, super Christians and new Christians, that they've said that is always an indicator to me that they're losing hope. And what they've said is, this will never change. You ever said that? You find yourself in a situation you're like, this, it said, it'll never change. Maybe you've been in a painful relationship and you, you're trying to make it work, you're praying, you're counseling, and you're like, it's, it's never going to change. Years ago, I visited someone who was in prison and every time I'd go see this person, I'd see them through the glass and we would talk and complicated, complicated story. They would often say to me, it's never going to change. I'm always going to be in here. The world has a way of crushing hope in us when we start to feel that some things just will never change. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you know someone who feels that. Maybe you think of your own life, of moments where you felt that. I felt that. And I've wondered, like, if things don't change, like, where, where's God? Like, Where's God in all this? And, and we're, we're caught between these tensions, right? There's some of us who resist change till the end. You know those people? We're never going to change. They sit the same place. They do the same thing. They act the same way. We have a few of those people in church, just a few. You know, they, they get nervous, no change. And then there's another part of our lives where we just want things to change so fast. And they can't change fast enough. 
Last week we started a teaching series just to help us understand what it means that we are not the first people to wrestle with feelings that make us doubt whether God cares about us, whether life situations are going to change, whether our life is going to get better, whether God's listening to our prayers. Actually, when you read the Bible and when you learn to understand it properly, you see there's so many other times when God is with people who are wrestling with that same question. They're wondering, like, if God's going to change their situation. If God's going to fix what's going on. And actually, God's people are at different times in history living under very oppressive circumstances. Much more complicated than our world. And in these contexts, the rulers of these different time periods, sometimes different empires, had a very, very strategic way to crush any hope that people had left that things might one day change. What they did is they made sure that people could, would stop worshiping their God. That was like the last nail in the coffin of making sure that people never believe, not even for a little bit, that things are going to change. It was those moments where people were meant to even doubt whether their God existed anymore. And last week, actually, I introduced you to a time in the life of the people of God in the Bible when they're living under a very oppressive empire. Anyone remember what it's called? Just curious. Some of you are here. Some of you stayed awake. Some of you are like, don't remember. Don't care. You can go home right now. The Persian Empire. But before the Persian Empire, there was another empire called the Babylonian Empire. And these people of God are wondering, will this ever change? Will God ever hear our prayers? Or are we stuck in this cycle of being almost slaves forever? Can we really tell our kids to keep praying when God hasn't answered our prayer? We're going to keep doing that? They're living in these moments of tension. And, you know, we're really, really blessed in the Bible to have snapshots of these moments in people's lives. I, I don't know if, if you'd be uncomfortable with this, but I'd be uncomfortable if people read my journal or they read an email that I wrote in a very difficult time. We have all these privacy of passwords on your phone. You have the thing with your finger, you know, you lick your finger, whatever you do to make sure nobody can see anything. And then we read the Bible, and I always feel bad because the Bible sometimes is like somebody sharing somebody else's journal with us so that we can see all the stuff. There's actually a book called the Book of Lamentations in the Bible. It's like a book of complaints. If you've never learned about the Bible, that might surprise you. Like when I was learning about the Bible, I thought the Bible was about stories of all these people that were amazing. And every time I read it, I was like, I'm never going to make it. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough authority. I don't have the power. I don't have the anointing. You know, all that dumb stuff you hear about, right? And then you really start to read the Bible for real. And you're like, wait a second. There's like stories here of people who are losing hope. There's like stories of people here who are wondering the same things that I and you wonder about whether God's going to change anything. Really? The book of Lamentations. How great is that? By God's grace, he left us this book. And it's actually a book of prayers, poetic poems written at times when people feel like that everything is broken and isn't going to change. Let me just read for you just a little, little snapshot of one of those complaints. This is what it says. In the days of her affliction, the people of God and wandering Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. You know, that, that happens first. Oh, it was so great when things were amazing. When her people fell into the enemy's hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her. Jerusalem represents the people and the region 
and God's people. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly. There's something about empires in the Bible, right? Not only like are people like down and out, not only are they discouraged, but you know, like, let's just laugh at them. You ever had that experience of like, <laughs> you guys, you believed in your God, you believed in like your faith, you prayed, where is your God now? It's meant to crush you. Life does that to all of us. And there's something really important about this passage that we have to understand that everybody in the Bible understands. The part of the challenges that people are facing in this time in their history, during the Babylonian Empire and during the Persian Empire, was their fault. It was their fault and they knew it. We live in a culture where it's never our fault. Like, I, maybe you have kids, you know this. This is the regular drill in our, in our house. You show up in the kitchen, everything's flooded. You know, you're like, What's how, why is that on fire? Why is if you have dogs, you know, like, why is the dog tied up with duct tape? What, and you call your kids and you're like, what happened? Who did this? Dad, I don't know. Dad, I don't know. They look around like there's other people living in your house. You're like, but were you here? Like, were you in this room when this happened? I don't remember. I don't remember. So as my kids get older, I'm thinking I need cameras all over the house. And when they were younger, I would trick them and say, oh, you don't remember? Okay, I'm going to go upstairs to my room, have a camera with everything they have in the room. When they were younger, they would get the sweats. They're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean, psycho dad? Cameras all over the house. They're too old. They don't believe that anymore. But it's, it's never anybody's fault. As you become an adult, it's somehow that doesn't go away. All the problems in the world are somebody else's fault. Can we just admit that some of the stuff that we are doing right now is our fault? Can we admit that some of the things that our kids do, they do because they watched us and it's our fault? It's too, it's too early again already. It's too early. The people of God in this passage and in this story know this is their fault. It's on them. They know. They know it's on them. And they feel it because they know that God told them that as they were going to be obedient and as they were going to serve him and as they were going to love him, he would be with them and guide them. And whenever they thought that wasn't that important anymore, they were going to do their own thing. God's like, I got to warn you about one thing about the kind of God that I am. I'm the kind of God that keeps his promises. That means I keep my word. That means I don't play around. That if I told you not to do this and I told you what the consequences would be of doing this, those consequences have to happen now. And it's hard for us to understand that, right? Because we have a view of God sometimes that loving God means a God that lets you do what you want. That's what we want. But that wouldn't be a loving God or a good God or a caring God or a faithful God or a God you can trust if he just changed his mind whenever something happened. He'd be like, I don't even know what God's going to do next. God's like, no, you always know what's going to happen because I keep my word. And the people in the story who feel like that nothing might change, they're not sure what's going to happen next, like in the Lamentations, they're praying and they're asking God and they're wondering and they know that part of their slavery is God teaching them something in this season of pain and suffering. They're praying for change, but they're about to learn something that we all have to learn this season. That sometimes before we can see change happen outside in our world, we have to surrender that, that God wants to do some change in our own lives. That God changes something in us before we can really understand the change that's happening outside of us. And sometimes that's painful. And sometimes we don't want that. 
We just want God to fix the problem somewhere. And God's like, that's not how this is going to work. And for the people of God in the season of slavery, the season of, oppre- the season of wondering, could things, are things going to ever change? Is God going to help us? Not only do they have the Babylonian Empire, they have this Persian Empire that shows up next. And if you've ever watched the movie 300, any of you watch the movie 300? I don't endorse movies. It's pretty intense. But in that movie, there's a snapshot of the Persian Empire. And the ruler of the Persian Empire at that time is portrayed in such a profound way. This is Hollywood, graphics, all that. Here's a picture. I have a picture of what the, the, the king of Persia would have looked like. I, saw, I was like, hey, that's a pretty good portrayal of a pretty crazy ruler. King Xerxes. Ruler, God of Persia. Think about how he would laugh at the Jewish people when they said, we're going to pray. Our God reigns. He saves us. Go at it, friends. Keep it up. It's going to be great. doesn't care. Because nothing's going to change. I am God. I'm the ruler here. And you people are slaves. That's how this works. You read the Bible, you're like thrown into this story and you have all these doubts. You're like, what is happening here? If you were with us last week, you know this. That one of the things that happens in these empires is that the empires start to train people to worship new gods. Not only do they mock the old gods, they start to teach them to do new things. One of the influences of an emperor is to redefine what success means, what it means to belong here. And in these empires, you might know this, some of you, especially if you've maybe read the Bible before, you know that some of the things that these emperors do is they change people's names. Belfazar is the name of Daniel under Babylonian captivity. A young girl named Hadassah, a good Jewish girl, she needs a Persian name. We're going to call her Esther. Just as a reminder that these conquering nations not only like messed your life up, they changed your identity so you could not remember where you came from. Your stories, your history, silenced. And last week, we looked at this moment where the people of God start to feel that change is coming. That out of the blue, when they least expected it, God seems to be doing something that they couldn't even have imagined or prayed for. That they couldn't even have thought of what might come next, like what's going to happen. And if you remember, just very, very quickly, there's two writers named Ezra and Nehemiah. They're leaders with other leaders. They write to us, when God decides that he's going to start to stir the heart of the Persian king, and he's going to invite his people to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to this land that was desolate and ruined. It was just a reminder every time they went back there of like, you know, the pain, the people that died, the people that they loved, the people that were gone. They went back there. And Ezra, the beginning of the book of Ezra, if you have a chance to read it, maybe you're, you're here for the first time, the Bible's new to you. Ezra and Nehemiah are these books that are like inviting us into these times where people are wondering, things are never going to change. Things are just all so broken. And this, this Cyrus, this ruler, comes up with this sense that he thinks it might be nice, kind of a nice idea for these Jewish people to go back to their land and rebuild their temple. Okay, if you were here last week, you remember this, that rebuilding the temple was one of the important indicators that God had forgiven his people and he was inviting them now again to worship him. Okay, this was the moment where they realized, well, things are about to change now. Now, some people 
They get up and they go. And Ezra is one of the rulers who decides he's going to go. And I can't imagine the feeling of getting back to Jerusalem. And even remember how long it would have taken for them to go from where they are to Jerusalem? How long? You know, four months. Four months. They're traveling with annoying people. They're like, ah, oh, this is hot. We don't have any stuff. When we get there, what are we going to do? All this stuff I think about, like just, you know, the, the, the ways that we feel, like what it means to journey with other people. You have people that you know, people you don't like. People that are annoying. People that when they call you on your phone, you're like, don't pick up, don't pick up, don't pick up, you know. Maybe I'm that person. I call you, invite you back to church. You're like, don't pick up, don't pick up, don't pick up. Some of you got that. Four months with all of you. Disaster. They get to Jerusalem. They start the foundation. They start to rebuild. And you know, like the people are like, what are these people doing? Who told them that they can come back here and worship their God? Didn't we kill your God? Didn't we like, weren't you guys slaves? Like what's happening here? And we're told this very important like note about what starts to happen. That as they start to worship, as they start to, to gain a little bit of hope, just a little bit of hope is all you need sometimes, right? Just enough that God maybe is in this. That's what we're told happens. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they had seen the other temple that was destroyed, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish, could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Imagine. The past and the future, laughing and crying, thinking, could this be it? Could this be a sign that God's really in this? Wondering about the good old days and maybe being like just emotional that something new is about to begin. We all feel this. Like I feel this especially this morning in a unique way as I think about the celebration of, of this church. We have pictures that we show. I have pictures on my computer of when it all started. And if I'm not careful, what can happen to me, what can happen to you, especially if you were here, is to long for some good old days when things were simpler, easy. In the, the good old days. You know, in the good old days, I made coffee. Some of the kids in the crowd had the clicker, so they controlled the slides. They were all off, by the way. So if you would have said it that, you would email us about it. The good old days. Can we just commit today as we celebrate five years of what God's been doing here? that we will never be people who live in the good old days. Never. We celebrate the past. We don't live in the past. Because Jesus is alive. And the Spirit calls the church into the future, a future that nobody knows. And that's okay. That's just fine. If you don't believe that this is where we're headed, let me just give you a snapshot of the fastest growing religion in the world that will need a church that does not live in the good old days. National Geographic posted this a few years ago. You can go to it. The world's newest major religion. No religion. More people than ever before are identifying as atheists, agnostics, or otherwise non-religious with potential world-changing effects. Wouldn't it be nice to just go back to the good old days when everybody walked to church together? Friendly, hugs. No. This is the world that God has left us in. And this will require a different kind of vision, a different understanding of worship, a different understanding of being the people of God, a different understanding of what it means to study the Bible and teach the Bible. 
I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I wish we could just go back to some simple time when everything just made sense for you, but maybe not for someone else. Weeping, celebrating. The tension of God beginning to do something new and people not sure how to feel about that. Not sure. I think of many people who, when the church started, you know, I, I mentioned to them, some of you know the story, I would say, hey, you know, what do you do? They would say, I'm an engineer, or I'm a doctor, and then they'd say, they all, like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I help with religious things. Pastor, I start to say stuff like that, and some people would say to me, like, so you help at a church? And then I would say, well, we're kind of starting a church, like planting a church, and they'd be like, Why? Like, does Quebec need more churches? And then they always have a creepy story of the one time in their life they went to church. Well, let me tell you about when I went to church. I'm like, dear Jesus, help me. Okay, and, and, and it would be horrible. And at the end of those conversations, all I would say was, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, we're gonna, it's going to be like different. You know, and these were times where the church didn't really exist. So I'm like, I think it's going to be different. I hope, uh, we're going to try but we're just broken too, and we're, we might make mistakes. This is what awaits us. Not only like in five years from now, ten, right now, with our kids and our grandchildren and our neighbors, people are like, I'm not into any of this. I don't know, church hurt me. All this stuff, this religious stuff is weird. Think about Ezra, Nehemiah. They're back in that world, and they're trying to prepare for a change that's coming. This is what happens next. It's fascinating. And then the people around them, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Can you imagine? Like, just when you have a good day, you're like, it's great. We get a pandemic. Things fall apart. You know how many times there were moments where we prayed and we wondered, and just when we thought, hey, it's going great, we had one of our partner churches say, we can't help you anymore. We're done helping you. And the elders prayed, and we thought about next steps, and we just tr were trusting God. We're going to have to keep learning how to do that every day, not only in the church, but in our lives. Learning how to trust God when your plans that you thought fit all together just go all out of whack. And God's like, don't you worry. What kinds of things discourage you? What kinds of things make you feel like that? The change you were hoping for doesn't look like it's coming together. And, you know, I'm not saying that we live in a town where there's people of the city coming to, like, you know, put, a, put a, like a wrench in it all and mess everything. I'm not saying that, but there are times when you just feel like we're not sure. And you're going to get discouraged, and I'm going to get discouraged. People that we've cared for and helped and encouraged, and we prayed for them, and they didn't get better. They got worse. Wash your hands and shut it all down. None of this is going to work. Discouraged. All the way, this time when God is moving, they're discouraged. Can we commit together to decide today that when discouragement comes, when moments of disappointment come, that we will choose to see beyond that moment and say, God, we know that your people have been discouraged before. We know that your people have faced difficult times before, but you showed up. And you help them to believe that change was in their midst. I want to encourage you to think about this. And I want to encourage you by telling you that we have leaders and staff and elders that are committed, pandemic, no pandemic, struggle, no struggle, to continue to dream about being the kind of church 
that's going to help people fall in love with Jesus again. Not just believe in God, but fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with God in such a way that their lives are turned around, that they, they would do a 180 and start walking in the direction of Jesus. We have a little short video that we want to show you, and it's a video of some of the things we're dreaming about, especially if you're a ministry partner. We pray that you're at our, at our next meeting because it's about some things we're thinking about, calculated risk, thoughtful prayers, about some next steps. And so take a look at this video. That was uh, a pre-COVID gathering of our church when we kicked off the church. Some of you are wondering, so what's, what does that mean? The space, what does it mean? What's God going to do? What other things can we do? I don't know. Some of you are going to figure that out. It's not my church. It's us being God's people together. And let me just tell you, like over the past few months, we've been working. There was a, another church that, that used that space a while back, and we were working with them. They're part of a family of churches we're a part of. And there was a transition coming there, and our elders are, said, you know what, this might be a great time to make space. We have community organizations that we're talking with who might also partner with us as we use that space to serve our community. These are things we're dreaming about. And there's going to be times, let me tell you, when we're going to be discouraged. When we're going to wonder, like, is that, was that a good idea? Like, it's all going to come together. But we are people who read the scriptures. We are people who study the Bible and who know that there are times when even God's people who could taste that change was there weren't really sure how it's all going to happen. And this wasn't just about a building or about space or about a warehouse. The people in the Bible are not just trying to build a temple because they need a temple because God, their God doesn't live in a temple. They know that their God is bigger than the temple, but what it meant is that they needed a space where they would learn together and grow together and be a light to the nations as they gathered together. Actually, we're told something really, really insightful that one of the rulers of Persia will tell Ezra when he goes back to their temple. This is what it says. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, his name was. Slap in the face, huh? King of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. They probably were wondering, I think he's lying, he's going to kill us. No, 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 you can go, it's all chill. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. If you're reading Ezra alone, or if you're reading Nehemiah, you could miss that and be like, what does that even mean? It means that the people of God were going back to Jerusalem, not only to build the temple, but to begin to learn again what it means to be the people of God with the teachings of their Torah, which was, the, which was called the law of God. It was the writings of Moses. It was writings of the people. We're not here to just build a building. They're not there to just build a temple. They're there to have a space where they can learn the scriptures again. We are living in the most biblically illiterate time in the history of Christianity. With the internet, the Bible is the most, the best-selling book year after year after year that nobody reads. You don't think we need a time and a place dedicated to worship and to learn the scriptures together? The people of God needed it in Persia, and the people of God will need it today again that we are those committed to creating space. Why, why would we have a learning series in the middle of the week? Why would we create a class for our kids upstairs? Because we know how important it is for people to begin to hear the scriptures again and learn and understand and be like, you know, I don't think I knew that. Or that makes sense. Or I'm growing to understand the Old Testament better. 
This is going to be so important for us. And we get to do this together because change is coming. Now, I know people that you know that, you know what, they're not into change. Any of you ever studied leadership management in any of your courses and any of school stuff? You know this. That in any change, there's three quadrants of, like, leadership training that all leaders learn. There's the 10%, which are early adopters. How many of you know this? Some of you are like, I know this. Okay, I'm making it simple. But there's early adopters. Those are people that buy the iPhone before it's even out. It's, it could be a piece of junk. They're early adopters. They just want to go show their friends that they were first. Then there's like the 70 kind of in-betweeners, sometimes 80 in-betweeners. They're waiting to see who goes first and dies. They're like, you go, you go, go. If the lion eats you, I'm not coming. Okay? They're those people. And then there's the late adopters. They're buying like, they're like people who are buying like a Blackberry now. <laughs> they're like, some of you, yeah, okay. Some of you just got, okay. They're like, we're never, we're never changed. No, 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 never, never. There's this tension. You're like, you feel it. It's all change management. If you learn about this, you know this. It's kind of like a little bit, I think, in the story. Because there's people, when God starts to change things, they don't go with Ezra. They're like, Ezra, you go first. Let's see if you die. I'll come later. Like, just send me an email or something. Right? But we know one person that doesn't go with Ezra, not because he doesn't want to change, but because he can't, and his name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah can't really go with Ezra on the first round. You know why? Anyone know why? Because Nehemiah has a job. You meet people like that. Hey, you want to help? You have a job. When do you work? Sunday. Did you ask to be put on Sunday? Yeah. Okay, that's good. All right. You want to help with that? I have a job. It's the go-to card, right? You change. No, no, no. I just have a job. Don't, don't bother me. They, they needed me. It's overtime. It's overtime. I had a job. I, I'm, I'm not sure Nehemiah would have said that. <laughs> but Nehemiah just doesn't go right away. And we know something about Nehemiah's job. He's a cupbearer to the king. It's actually a very prestigious official job to drink before the king drinks. It's also the most dangerous job ever. Because every day you're like, I'm going to die today. today. All right, poison, I'm dying, don't drink that. <laughs> Nehemiah tells us he's a cupbearer and he has a job. He's probably one of those people that can't just go and we know that his heart is with the people of God. And we know that he has enough influence that now he's in the circles of influence if he's the cupbearer. And Nehemiah every so often listens in to, hey, what's happening? What's happening back home? What's happening in Jerusalem? What are, what are they doing over there? You know, somebody say, well, what's the 180 up to? What are those people doing? I heard there's a second warehouse. What are they doing over there? And at one point, Nehemiah, like, gets somebody's ear. He, he talks to somebody. This is what we're told. The word of Nehemiah, the words of Nehemiah, you read the beginning of Nehemiah. He, he talks to Hanai. One of my brothers came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Like he's like, checking in. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah's feet are in his job, but his heart are with the things of God. Nehemiah works for the Persian ruler, but he's wondering, are the, is God really with us? Are things changing? And he finds out that although likely Ezra and the people are working hard and the temple's coming together, the walls around the temple are still down. Nehemiah knows this and everybody knows this, that no matter how wonderful things look, 
that the Jewish people are one siege away from being back at square one. Just all you need is enough of the people to be like, your God's not real, we're burning down everything. And Nehemiah is just wondering, wondering when God's going to open up a door for him to also be involved or to serve or to get, to get with what God's doing. Maybe this is the year that some of you realize that although you have a job, and that's very important, that God's calling your heart to not just be focused on your job, but to see your job as a gift that allows you to be part of the things of God. And to see yourself, even as you work, to be there and to say, God, how would you use me in this context that feels like very foreign to Christianity? My, my friend doesn't believe, my coworker thinks I'm crazy. How would God maybe stir something new in your conversations, in your relationships? Or somebody might one day say to you, I just have a question about faith or about God or about what you believe. Do you believe God heals people? Do you believe that God can restore a broken marriage? Do you believe God helps parents raise kids that make good decisions? Do you believe any of that? Nehemiah is this figure. Ezra, the priest, he's going to teach. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, he's going to go now. And this is what we're told when Nehemiah hears about, like, the wall still not built, guys. Somebody's, I hope somebody does that. That's what we're told. When I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When's the last time you cried like this? When's the last time you wept and fasted for the things of God? I know parents who will fast and weep for their kids. I know people who might fast to get a promotion. But I know very few people that will say, God, make my heart soft to seeing you at work in people's lives. So people will experience your healing and your love in new ways. That we're told that Nehemiah just... We don't know how he gets away from some work and he, he goes and he begins to cry. And he says, God, like, you have to be at work. Like, this has got to change. In 2014, about a year before we would move back and even a year before we would plant this church, I quietly sat on this desk that I had at my old house in Ontario and I made a list of people's names that I knew who lived in Montreal because I lived in Ontario. And that list was the names of people who I knew who had stopped going to church and stopped believing in God. People I grew up with, people who I went to school with, people who were committed to the things of God and are like, ah, it's all dumb, Christianity, church, oh, so weird. Just made a list, family members and friends, people I would see something and I would ask them, hey, are you, just a list. And I remember as I made that list, there was a sense that God said, it's time to go home. I'm like, not me. Let somebody else go first. That's really what started part of coming back and thinking that maybe a new church could start. That maybe those people on that list, they might never come back, but one day their kids would. One day their grandchildren would. One day their friends would. If there was another way of seeing God change the situation and create a space where people could learn and grow and ask questions and wrestle with their doubts and open up the Bible for the first time and begin to grow and love each other in a new way. That was the 180 before the 180. If you're going to be part of what God's doing here, you with us are going to have to learn to weep 
for some new things and seek out God for new ways of being his people in this time. Let me just warn you, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to get discouraged when things don't change, when things don't move fast enough, when people don't listen, when people don't care, when you see your kids make decisions and you're like, no, you're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be that. But God has always been with his people. God has always been faithful, walking with his people and helping them to be his people as things change. The Gazette, a few years ago, had an article about Quebec, and you can go to the last slide. Quebecers least likely to believe in God or attend religious services, and it's a whole article you can read, and they asked Premier Francis Legault, I hope God exists, but I have no confirmation. It's a good answer, by the way. How many of you would be early adopters? Yeah, let's do this. It's going to be great. Everybody's ready. No, they're not. I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to pray for us. And if we had time, I would tell you about small answers to prayer that God began to do that led us to this moment. I pray that one day people see a picture of this service and they say, wow, it was so nice when you guys were just starting. Look at us now. That we would have dreamed and believed that God was still changing things. But that will happen as we get serious about God changing us. As we begin our next year together and as we wait for any surprise that might come our way, would we be those who pray that God would change us to be people who create a safe space to listen, to be people who pay attention to how the world around us is changing and to catch ourselves when we say, oh, some good old days, wouldn't that be great? That's not what we're here for. And that God has not left us alone, but that he's with us the way he's always been with his people, and that he's with us again. And he's going to teach us what it means to go and to see things and even for some of you to begin to weep for the very first time. To feel in your heart that this is your responsibility too. Not just the, the pastor guy, the staff. No, it's ours. Sure, our feet might be in a job, in another setting, in another context. But would we be those who are sensitive to when God stirs our heart? Because remember, if God can stir the heart of a pagan ruler to send the people back to Jerusalem, his people better not have their hearts that are hard because that would make us worse than the pagans. Let us pray. Father, I, I don't really know how to pray for this one.
people that we love and care about do not know you, Jesus. It's our fault. Many of us, it's our fault. We have failed to uh, create a space where they could come with their questions and hear you call their name, hear you tell them you love them. So we ask you to help us. Help us to be serious about the next phase that you're calling us into with our families and with our kids as we dream about the space for them with our community that is not sure why they need another church. I pray for those who are here this morning, maybe they're listening and they feel the weight that some things feel like they're never going to change. They're carrying a deep burden and a weight that they can't even express. Would you help them to know today that you are the God that loves to change things? Would you do that in a way by changing them, their perspective? May your peace and your love and your strength fill them now to see things from a different perspective. As we go, we pray that as we step into this fresh year as a church with all of its surprises, be with us when we're discouraged. Help us when we feel like things are just not going the way we thought. Pray for our elders and our staff and the decisions that they make. I pray that you would teach us to find our place, to be generous with our time and with our lives so that others, Jesus, would fall in love with you again. And they would understand that, God, you are alive and well. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I have good news. We have cupcakes for you guys. <laughs> Mario and Judy, thank you so much for making it for us. We got some cupcakes. Hey, we, we have individual cupcakes because we want it to be COVID sensitive and careful. On your way out, you can grab them. They'll be on our communion slash baptism table that somebody from our church actually built. And maybe for some of you this morning was a confirmation that you're ready to get baptized. Take that next step. For those of you who are in the learning series, Tuesday night, we're going to learn. Come ready. If you, if you missed it, you can still join us. But besides that, happy birthday, 180. Love you. God bless everyone.